Now smile. I beg your pardon? Smile. Why? Just do it. I'm afraid I can't smile without a reason. Smile. What's there to smile about? Just do it. Why? Don't ask why. What's there to smile about? future is in your hands, Mr. Travis. Take it. Now. stuff we've seen. This is your host, James Kent. And now, here he is, the FBI informant in the plot to kidnap Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer. <laughs> Tia, what a hero. <laughs> That's the intro. That's oh, the man. intro. Okay, yes. so these guys, these guys, they had a, they had a trap door and they, they would go into the basement under the underneath a store and, and have their meetings. And they all put their uh, cell phones in a safe so they couldn't be eavesdropped on by the NSA. I know. They were really did they really smart. But they forgot to check each other for wearing a wire. <laughs> I know. You would see if they so. had just watched Black Klansmen, they would have figured out that the that they should be checking a guy for the wire. I thought about that movie. That there was the exact same scenario. <laughs> this this could turn into twenty minutes, and we have some important stuff to do on the okay, show. Okay, right. I'm going to take a twenty minute introduction instead. No. Okay. So about a year ago, a little bit longer, you told me about a film that you watched on Amazon Prime, and it was called Buzzard. Yes. And so I checked it out, and then we talked about it because we both thought it was pretty cool, and then you made an offhand comment. You said, "Hey." Uh, the director was uh, Joel Petrikas, and you said, Joel, we love you. Come on our show. La, da, da. Right? <laughs> little joke. And then lo and behold, suddenly I got an email a few weeks later, and it was Joel saying, oh, hey, someone mentioned that uh, I, you know, that we talked about him on the show, and okay, well, I'm here. Let's talk. And I was like, great. Well, you know what, Teal, you're the one who was really, you know, <laughs> who you, started you opened this your all. big mouth. So why don't you get in touch with them and I set it up and then I waited and you didn't set it up and then after like a few weeks I'm like well what did you do you didn't you didn't set it up and you're like well I didn't and now I'm embarrassed 
because I <laughs> because it's been so long. <laughs> long. And then I finally was like, all right, well, I guess I'm going to have to do it. And then I'm like, no, I'm going to teach him a lesson. You know, it's time for Taylor to be a big boy <laughs> and he can make these plans. And then, then basically it just became embarrassing at this point. Right. Whereas all yeah. these months go by. Um, and then of course, you know, COVID hit and, uh, you know, the quarantine and all this stuff. And then you took like a hiatus for the summer, right? Yes. Because I guess, you know, being at home, you had a lot of things to do and you couldn't <laughs> I do was the too show. Busy. I was very busy. Busy being at home. Right. So then I started having to book guests for the show, right? I'm like, well, I don't know. Maybe he's not going to come back. I'm going to have to just do my own little uh, my own little guest. And I started doing that. I'm like, you know what? I do this uh, on the side, uh, my own work that I do that I actually get paid for. I have to like take guests right. and interview. I'm like, you know what? Damn it. I want to talk to this Joel guy. I'm going to like uh, reach back out to him. It's been a year. And I, had, I, I saw this uh, other film, his most recent film that he did. And it was 2018. It was Relaxer. Yes. And I, when I saw the description. It popped up. It was on Canopy. And so I read it and it sounded like it was kind of, it was themed for the 90s and we were going to do that Slacker episode. Yes. And I thought, well, I should watch this film. And I did, and that kind of completed the trio of his big efforts uh, with Buzzard, Alchemist Cookbook, and Relaxer. And after watching Relaxer, I said, you know what? I got to, I'm just so curious. I, I yeah. got to talk to this guy. So then I re-reached out to Joel because I wanted to surprise you with a guest. <laughs> yes. And then he said he would come on. And then I was able to tell you, and I knew that you was, yeah, I knew you were like, you know, look at there's been a lot of crappy stuff going on the last six months. And I knew you needed to pick me up. Yes. And this was the the best news I'd gotten in a while. And yeah. you even said that. You're like, this is the news that I needed in my <laughs> life. So without further ado, on the line with us this evening is when we're taping is film director Joel Petroikas. He uh, hails from the Michigan area, I believe like Grand Rapids, uh, where he's also a professor um, at the university there, the film school. Uh, so Joel, welcome to the show. Hey guys, hey James, hey to y'all. Um, yeah, I'm coming from Grand Rapids, home of the Shack Vac, where they plan the underground meetings to kidnap Gretchen Whitmer. Oh, that was in Grand Rapids. See, now, Chill, you're seeing how my intros play into things. There's always a methodology. Oh, and I always wondered how the Shack Vac stayed open, and now I get it. It was just a front this whole time. It's right on Division Avenue in one of the crummiest parts of town, and you're wondering how, how is a vacuum repair place stay open for 30 years so and i wonder if they had seen uh breaking bad and realized that uh, vacuum <laughs> repair shops are great fronts for yeah it's that <laughs> militia money man <laughs> oh yeah that sweet sweet militia money once that starts coming in you can open all the vacuum repair shops you want well it's good to be on the show guys and uh i appreciate you reaching out again a year later and uh I'm I'm here. I'm I'm ready to do this. After seeing Relaxer, I suddenly realized my in was that I think this is a guy who would appreciate someone reaching out to him a year later and saying, "Hey, <laughs> when are you coming on the show?" Yeah, I haven't I haven't been doing much for the past year, just sitting on the couch mostly and vegetating, literally. I know. I mean, it's just so funny if we think about a year ago. Not, no one could have imagined that that's what most of 2020 was going to be like. Well, but also you have a you have a young kid right so there's a lot of just uh, sitting on the couch and vegging when you have like a right. kid sleeping on top of you uh i that's actually the fantasy of that i just can <laughs> sit on the couch i know it, it happened it happened it to is, me once and so i i hold on uh, to that memory it would just be so 
great to be able to do that. So, Joel, let me ask you, I had this experience with my second child where right after she was born, I, I had trouble watching violent movies. I'm wondering, like, does having a kid change the way you interact with movies or with your own work in any way? It does. Like, it, it first started because I, I just kind of thought that I was going to be the dad to introduce him to all the cool horror movies at a young age and he'd get a head he'd get a head start on being you know super cool and when he was less than a less than one I sh I didn't show him but I started to watch Friday 13th part two and what I saw was that he was actually you know like kids that age are rambunctious and they're squirmy and they they can't sit still but he was sitting still and he was glued to the screen and it really freaked me out oh, so wow. i pulled the plug on him not only watching scary movies but really kind of any tv because he was like he's a zombie and he just is taking in everything way more than i thought a kid would take in and then i did have a fear that suddenly all, everything that I was going to write and my ideas were going to be like spy kids and, you know, things like that. And <laughs> luckily that hasn't happened, but, and with watching movies, it hasn't really changed the way I see them or my reactions, except for kids on screen. And I used to, I used to think my mom was a real wimp for kind of not wanting to watch Stephen King movies with me and things like that. But now I get it like Pet Cemetery and Cujo, like, that's not entertaining to me anymore, at least when my son is this age. I just, right. I'm able to kind of see the terror in a whole new way and I'm not okay with it. So the majority of movies, my movie watching has not changed, but if you introduce a little kid on screen, I suddenly get very nervous and uncomfortable and don't even talk to me about a Serbian movie at this point in my life. Oh, <laughs> you, you had to bring that up. <laughs> Sorry. Now you, you have seen it. I have not seen that. Uh, th that's a movie that I refuse to tell people the title of for fear that they might watch it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I got you mentioned I teach and I, I was teaching a class once and it got it just spiraled out of control. We were talking about horror. Yeah, we got into a Serbian movie. And obviously, I mean, not obviously, but none of the students had seen it. And I started to tell them what it was about. And I was like, I might get fired, I feel like. So I just <laughs> said, I don't want to say anything more because I want to keep my job. So this movie exists, buyer beware, and kind of left it at that. And you can Google it on your own time. Yeah. It, it doesn't evoke something in me other than I shouldn't be watching this. Yeah. Or like they shouldn't have filmed this or like just that's it's like gone to. But that's an interesting line. Like, do you feel like you're sometimes pushing on those those lines? No, come on now. <laughs> well, no, no, sorry. That okay. I no, man, I, mean, I no, forgot. No, that's Joel's next movie. <laughs> I don't even feel like I've ever done anything even remotely taboo or shocking. Not or even. I mean, people talk about relaxers. Oh, it's so gross. And, and I know it's not, it may be sound, right. sound hard to believe, but I never thought it was gross to me. I was just like, this is what would happen if this was actually a real thing. Like all of these. All of these things that he goes through are, are kind of, you know, based and grounded in some kind of realism, in my head at least. I, you know what I think people found the gross? It was the milk scene. Yeah. Which, yeah. Because it's just, it's, you know, it's, that, that's what I thought made that movie so effective. And this is where, you know, I'm, I'm tipping my hat to you because 
an audience who watches it, somehow you want to invoke the feeling that that, that milk really is old and that there might yeah. actually be urine in that milk. And even though there's you know, no way that would be true, you'd hope, you feel that as an audience. I actually felt like, yes. oh, my God, he's drinking that milk. <laughs> there was, yeah, there's so much tension in that for me. And, yes, yeah, so, and a little bit of disgust. <laughs> yeah. And, and to us, I mean, it was that that to me is just was really funny because it's we're doing I mean, that we used to do that, those things when we were younger, like all my friends who are making this movie, basically not with the urine, but, right, you know, but you, every, <laughs> everybody, but would, everybody would put five dollars in a in a bucket and you'd show up with a gallon of milk and the last person to puke would keep the money. And so it was just it <laughs> was just part awesome. of like my life and it didn't right. seem outrageous or gross or shocking. It was like, oh, everybody's going to remember when they used to do this. But I don't know <laughs> if everybody did that kind of thing. But it's like there's a big part of me that was is very kind of into Johnny Knoxville and trying to mesh that with some kind of, you know, art film aesthetic. So to me, that's just made sense that this it all fit. And it yeah. wasn't for gross out or shock or anything. I, I shouldn't say it was. I was grossed out. It was just it, that there's tension to it because it, it adds drama to it. And so it ends up being, you know, it's not just drinking the jug of milk. There's, there's a lot of drama and a lot of character development that's going on throughout that process. And that's, uh, you know, to me, what's so incredible about Relaxer is that how much the story works through these really small things. Yeah, and I was just, uh, we had a Skype with Patrick Bryce in my class just uh, tonight before I oh, cool. hopped down with you guys, and we were talking specifically about tension and his movie Creep 1 and Creep 2 specifically, and how important that is and how many times I've dropped the ball with trying to create tension uh, in other films, and like, if you can master tension, you're pretty much a millionaire. I'm not there yet, but if... <laughs> But if every scene, the audience is like, well, I can't, I can't walk out right now. I can't pause it right now. I got to see how this ends. Then everybody's going to watch your movie from beginning to end. And like, that's the secret is just having tension. Right. I'm not there yet. I'm far from it. But every movie I'm trying to like find the tension somehow. Where's the tension? Where's the tension? Without that, there's, if somebody can pause your movie and walk away, then I failed. Are you looking for that in the writing process initially? Like at, when you're imagining a scene, I'll go back to relaxer for a second. It's just that the script I feel like is incredibly resourceful. It's constantly finding new ways to explore this uh, situation this guy's in. And so are you thinking about tension? Yeah. Is, is that sort of your one of your goals while writing? And how do you find it? Yeah, it's it, it starts with the writing and so if it's not on the page it's not going to be there on the set and i don't i don't know how to find tension i think yeah. it's, it's so kind of vague and i was asking patrick how he does and he's like i don't know i'm just trying to guess at this too but it's basically <laughs> if you could somehow just tell the audience all right this is going to happen at the end of the scene and they're like no way is that going to happen and it's like yes it is i'm going to prove to you that somehow we're going to get there uh and then twist a little surprise at the end I, so it's like you just have to promise the audience something at the start of every scene and and they and see how the impossible is is achieved i don't know it's so it's such a kind of vague thing i show the scene from uh the, the blood test scene in the thing to my class like this is a tension you know it's just this easy but it's not easy at all and john carpenter's right. that's why john carpenter is john carpenter because he's he's somehow figured it out uh, your four features in 
admittedly have not seen your first film, Ape, because I haven't been able to find it um, for free <laughs> right now. I think that there's... I'm pretty sure it's on Pirate Bay, if you really are looking for the free route. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but the three that I've watched, uh, it, when you talk about those things like tension, I definitely see your building a little repertoire of films that there's an aesthetic, there's a feel, there's a vibe that I'm now starting to, with the relaxer, say, I see some trademarks of a Droll Petroikas film and, and that gets me excited. And, you know, I've done, I've done some reading in some of the interviews and, you know, people are always like kind of wanting to hear your story of like, why aren't you making Hollywood movies or did you go out to Hollywood and this and that? And maybe some people not understanding where your roots are and why you like making films in Michigan with your friends and in a small controlled environment where you really get control. Um, and I think that some of that is probably because, and this is where the compliment I think comes in rather than saying, I love your movies, man, is that people are excited to see what you're going to do next. So they feel like, well, if you're just in Hollywood, you're going to be make, making a movie a year or something. And uh, I always feel like if I like a filmmaker, I'm so I'm back to being a kid again, where I'm like, when's the next movie coming out? When's the next movie coming out? <laughs> and I feel like that I'm, I'm right there with you now, where I'm like, I want to see what he's going to do next. Well, that's good. I mean, for, for so long, it felt, I felt like pressure to keep delivering, delivering, delivering. So we were, making the, those four features we made one every other year and then after relaxer it i really felt burnt out and and i was thankful that there was not some agent or manager or someone saying come on joel we got to crank out the next one people are waiting and i was just i had my kid and i was like this all works out because i just need a break for a while and i can just kind of hang out with this this kid but yeah, to be to be able to teach, and so I don't I don't rely on movie making for a paycheck, right? Right, because that just isn't happening either way. So I have that luxury of of not needing to make a movie. So I just make a movie when I when I want to. And for so long, I was just like I had good momentum, and I was just riding that momentum, and uh, kind of not taking a step back and saying, "Is this still?" something you want to do continually every other year. Like it's just nonstop with the writing and directing and right. editing. There's literally no breaks. And so I'm in a good spot right now where I got to feel like I can step back and make sure this next one is like crafted even better. And, and I, I could put more effort into the script and, and, and pre-production and things like that. Now, do you have a next, do you have another idea that's germinating that you're hoping to make? Yeah. I have a, I have a script ready to go. Just waiting on this whole COVID thing to blow over yeah, right. yeah. and um waiting until my i feel like my son is old enough where where i feel like i can be i i can't even be away from from for one night and without feeling like that ache in me yep. well see, I'm, this is where i'm i'm coming in to help here okay uh, and, it, and it, well it's kind of tough because i know that when you make a film right the part that's probably you know in the back of your mind is, is the dread is the actual production that's what's going to take you away from a good like solid month or so and then even the pre-production and then the post-production so that's where you know you're gone more than somebody that might have like a 50 hour a week job or something but uh, when my oldest was very little at the age that yours is uh, i had a job work for a big company and i had to travel not all the time but I had to go, you know, a couple of times a month. I have to fly away for a night or two. And then sometimes there was a big marketing meeting or something and I had to go away for an entire week. 
And it was different when you had that kind of job where you're like, okay, well, I have to make money and this is right. my job and I have no choice in the matter. I have to go away. Uh, but the entire time I was there, I would always like be thinking, especially it was on the airplane. I was always thinking, geez, I you know, hope the plane doesn't crash because I want to see yeah. my kid again. And But I mean, you get, you, you get into a thing where like, okay, you know what? And the kid doesn't miss, like, you know, they, they don't understand. They're not going to be freaked out and they're, they're going to be excited when you're back home. But uh, he, you know, talk to him now. He doesn't even remember that I ever traveled. <laughs> right. Yeah, they it don't was, remember anything. He doesn't even talk to you, Jim. He doesn't. He actually goes, he's up in his room playing uh, video games. He's, he's the new version of Relaxer. He's up there. How old is he? He's 12. Yeah. He, uh, my son was born March 1st and Relaxer premiered at South by Southwest on March 10th. I know that's crazy. Oh, wow. it, it was okay. really difficult and I didn't think it was going to be that difficult. So I, I cut the trip short and I didn't go to any more festivals for the all of Relaxer. Oh, uh, really? Because oh, wow. it was because it was weird. I'd been to South yeah. by Southwest. That was my you know third film in a row. And it was like, I've done this, man. I'm like, what am I doing here? I've, it's after what it may sound it sounds silly but like you go to the exact same you kind of have the same festival because the same circuit uh, the fa same festival tour because the same programmers are working there and they like your work so right, right. they're all all the same people are inviting you to the same city every two years and after two times going there it's like okay i get it and so with relaxer i was like i'm i'm, just, I'm not gonna do it for this one and i just kind of took a step back and uh and stayed home all summer instead of doing festivals and i don't i don't regret it but i i I'm not looking forward to that aspect of making a movie where part of it requires you to travel and do press and go to right. these festivals yeah. and I don't know, just kind of. It's a grind. So I read a thing you had written, Joel, about having anxiety during production. Yeah. He's like, yeah, you go <laughs> yeah. on. I'm listening. It's okay. Because that's, that's another thing. I don't, I, I honestly have never enjoyed the production part of making a movie. I love writing and I love editing i mean because those are two things you can do on your own by yourself whenever you want and it's the part about like relying on people and having a schedule and hoping the sun is out and it's not raining or that it is raining or that your actors aren't hung over it's just like so many moving parts that just man it just weighs on me and just it's really really awful anxiety and it's it's something i just suffer through because i love the feeling of having made a movie, but I don't necessarily right. love the process of making it. But the writing and editing. You, you yeah, I love that. Yeah. But I don't trust anybody else to direct it but me, so I have to see it through. <laughs> and I think we can relate to that. I mean, we both both of us went to film schools and uh, did various things. Not nothing like what you've done. But I think that honestly, like for for me, I was you know I love to have a film made that I made. Yeah. But going through the actual process of making it, that that on set production process is grueling. I never liked it in film school, and I guess I never really wanted to pursue it afterwards because it is nothing but an anxiety anxiety ball yeah yeah and i i it's like you have for me it was like was weighing the anxiety versus the regret of not doing it and it was like i went so long with just like oh this is i'm too anxious i don't want to do it and and then living with that regret so it was like oh, i'll just suck it up and just deal with this awful dread for a month and then hopefully just live my life without regret. But the thing is, is that I was always like, I'm just going to make one feature, just get it out of my system and I'm good. But you just, there's that constant little nagging 
voice in the back of your head is like, oh my gosh, it's been a year and a half. It's been two years. It's been three <laughs> years since your last feature. And it's like, I don't care. I don't really care. I'm not trying to amass some Hitchcockian level of, you know, a catalog of 53 films or something. Like, right. I don't know why I just have to keep doing it. I would love to just never do I would be so happy to never do it again. Yeah, but I think as long as you still have the ideas, if the ideas come, then you got to do it, right? If yeah. you don't have the ideas, yeah. okay, and then you're then you're forced or you start looking for things. But does that come I I'm, I'm curious like with the writing process for you, do you or do you feel compelled to write in order to make the film or is it just the writing itself that you enjoy? Like it, the problem is, is I have like a database of all my little ideas, just two or right. two or three sentences. And if I open that up and I come across one that I really like, Oh, I forgot about that idea. And I'll just start eh, just see what happens here. I write a little synopsis or something. And then it, <laughs> the next day I'm like, Oh, let me just write a page of it. And then all of a sudden a week later, I'm like, just, I can't, I can't leave the keyboard. Oh, you know, I feel like Jack Nicholson where it's like, Oh, I'm fighting myself. I have this idea and it's so difficult to find your way through, but it's like, I need it. But once I just finished this, the latest draft of this, this next feature, it took me two years to do it, but I've never had two years to be able to do it. So that's why I think why it wasn't like, uh oh, July 1st, next year we're shooting. I got to rush this thing through. But every day I was trying to just pull one scene out of myself that it was so difficult. But I think as as a result, it's just the best thing I've ever written because I've I've never like kind of fought with something harder and I've never had the ability to, to fight for this long. So I'm just in a different spot right now where yeah. I'm not, I don't feel rushed and I don't feel this need to hurry up and do things. So it's, it's a good spot, I think. My whole plan for this uh, interview uh, <laughs> is completely off, is already, is already thrown out the window. Wait, you had a plan? Wow. Well, I was going to take us through, like, I wanted to hear a little bit, because I know that, you know, our, our, our listeners, they may not know you or, or have done some of the research we have. So I always like to not just take it for granted that, oh, well, we're going to just jump into things without getting kind of taking back and understanding your journey. But I think that part's pretty much gone at this point. So um, <laughs> what I, but so I'm just going to ask you kind of questions about your journey that I found fascinating that you, you know, not obviously in the Alchemist cookbook, um, it was very small cast and a completely different cast, but your regular, as I call him, uh, Joshua Burge has been in three of your films. And I'm kind of curious about that relationship, how it started, um, because it's just it seems like the two of you have a really strong uh, working relationship and you seem to be able to get a lot out of him. That's pretty amazing. Yeah. So to fill in some gaps for your listeners, I, I am a Michigan filmmaker. I live here and really work with low budgets and a very small group of people making these movies. And I think the secret that any director uh, needs is you just need a, a face for your idea. And that was what I lacked for so long when I was making my short films. I never had, I never had the guy that I thought was <laughs> like, looks like my ideas. And I, I knew this guy, Joshua Burge. He was a, he was a musician. He, he was in a band called Chance Jones in Grand Rapids. And he was like, uh, he was like a real, it was a really popular band and everybody really was just like kind of glued to him on stage. He, he like, he's nothing like he is in the mo- in my movies. He's, he move, would move around and dance and he just had this presence. And I would just be like, my gosh, if I could just, he's got energy. If I could just 
Maybe I'll just ask him if he wants to be in a movie. I'll write something that doesn't have any dialogue because I don't know if he can actually <laughs> act, but he's got a presence. So I wrote this little short film called Coyote with no dialogue and he was in it. And we just instantly clicked because like he's a musician. So he has, he has rhythm and he, he knows right. he can, re- he's got a good memory for certain things. And, uh, and he, we, but more importantly, like we were just on the same page aesthetically. Like we just like, we're into the same movies and he knew what kind of movie I was going for. And I didn't have to say a lot. And so he just, it was like, it was just great. And it was like, this is, this is my guy. This is my Bruce Campbell. This is my, (laughs) you know, this is my De Niro. This, this is the guy for me. And, and so I wrote, I was like, we should just, there's this new camera called the DSLR. I'm going to go buy one from Best Buy tomorrow. We should just like make a feature on the weekend. So let me write one real quick here. <laughs> and so I wrote something for him that was Ape and it's about a stand-up comic. And and it turned out he could, you know, because he's a musician, he could memorize things and and hit his marks and he just knew how to how to portray something uh, on screen. Because like musicians are, are, like especially like lead singers are kind of, they're doing a performance. They're oh, kind yeah, of acting up there. Yeah. So for the longest time, he was an actor slash you know performer, and it's just kind of changed his medium with film, and uh, and now he's he's like a big time guy, and he's in all these movies. Well, he's in the Revenant for good. He's in the Revenant. That's that, <laughs> yeah. and that's the big reason that he was not in the Alchemist Cookbook because Inurito oh. uh, stole him from me for nine months when he was up in canada and i was like okay i'll i'll <laughs> oh, show man. you i'll cast you somebody else guy. i lost, lost my guy but you know what though yeah. that was where you know that's the second film that i watched and i uh-huh. haven't seen it in a year and teal just recently saw it and i remember when i watched that film i said boy if teal like buzzard he is going to love the alchemist cookbook that's the kind of movie where i'm sure there's been a lot of people that watched it and got very frustrated right because there's minimal dialogue and when we talk about tension building there's probably a little bit of patience trying for some people in that movie uh but that's the kind of thing i like i I sometimes call them paint dry films where there's something uh, really uh, pleasing to me to wait and just build and build so slowly. Um, but I just thought that it was great too, because here is a film. It was the second film I watched of yours and it was an entire cast, uh, uh, people of color, which mm-hmm. I thought was really cool. Um, because again, I don't know what I was expecting, but I knew nothing about the movie going in and I thought, well, this is another different aspect um, different type of character that I'm seeing, and I didn't know what this person's journey was supposed to be. Um, so I found the whole thing totally fascinating, and then I knew when Teal finally saw it, he was going to love it, and he did. Well, not only that, Jim, you told me that the film was probably based on me, and I, and <laughs> well. I just want people to know, I just want people to know that Joel and I have never met, and that he's not basing his movies on me. But Jim, are you, Jim, like you cutting open batteries in your spare time and? casting spells in the forest what does that even mean i would love to hear what do you what do you, what do you mean <laughs> do i need to tell this guy teal actually has his family has a like a, a, a place up on a, like an island off of the coast of maine where there's maybe like what like 50 residents year round and you've been up there like living months <laughs> yeah i've definitely spent a lot of time alone doing 
strange and interesting things. Yeah, I mean, not necessarily casting spells, but, you know, I did at one point I, I was unemployed and I spent like a month and a half alone in my apartment doing sacred geometry. <laughs> okay. I'm yeah. telling you, this is Keel's uh, <laughs> revealing a lot of himself tonight. I am. I'm revealing a lot of myself. But but that's something that really appeals to me about your films is that I do I feel connected to them because they're about being alone a lot of the time. So many movies are really all about social interaction, and you're really looking at people what they do when nobody's watching, and I find that that compelling. And I'm just yeah, what interests you about that? Yeah, I think you nailed it. It's like, what? how are people when nobody's looking is my favorite kind of, like, that's what I like to explore. And that, and people are always like, why is everybody going to eat in your movies? Because it's like, I'm really like into, yeah. wh- what do people, what are people like when we don't see them? Are they eating with their mouth open and chomping and spitting? Like, we'll, <laughs> we never really will know what a person is like when we're not looking at them. And so that's what right. I think a, a, the, what a movie can do. And I mean, I was just talking about how production is like the awful, I don't like it because there's all these people asking you things. Right. And, and so all of these movies that I'm making are just, I mean, I don't realize it at the time, but they're just my fantasies. Like, it, but they're like they're like they're like the nightmare version of the fantasy. Right, right. <laughs> they're like what 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 could be like the worst thing that could happen? But because that it is, it's just like love to go on this island off of Maine or, and just have nobody around for months and months. That's just like not a great thing for a you know a dad of a two year old to feel. <laughs> I mean, because it's like I'm now realizing like I'm never going to have that. Probably not for the like next sixteen years at least. But that's, I just want to be alone and I love writing and editing and nobody's around. So, right. that's, that just comes out in these, these scripts that I just, I just love the characters so much. And I just, I, I kind of, I'm, I'm living through them and just, I want what they have, even if it's like, seems disgusting or, or just awful to most people. Just that isolation is, is just beautiful to me. Yeah, and I, I I totally agree. That's I think what you know, watching Alchemist Cookbook that appeals to me. I I, I that there's a I, I totally agree. There's an element of fantasy there for me too, which is you know it, he talks at one point about you know not having any bills or owing any debts or I forget the line exactly. Yeah, but there's this sort of idea of not being responsible to the rest of the world. Yeah. It's kind of appealing. Yeah. I look at it as having no obligations. Yes. Like that's like, I feel like that's what I'm working toward. Like in my, in my life, I just want to get right. to a point meaning no obligations, meaning I don't even have to have a job if I don't, because I have, it'll never happen, but like, I'll have sure like to, to, to be rich to me. is not like you can spend money on anything to be rich means I don't have to owe anybody anything. I don't have to give them my time. Right. I don't have to right. give them lip service i can just do whatever i want that is like that would be a beautiful thing like i really really love teaching and so i feel lucky that i'm in a profession that i love but before that man i worked a lot of shitty jobs and (laughs) and like you would you really think about it i mean you are you're giving your life to a company like it's just oh for a few dollars yeah it's really it's I mean, it's, it's what life is, but it's when you really get down to it, it's like, I'm giving my life for money. Oh, it just makes me feel 
there's something really not right about that. Well, I feel like that's going on in Buzzer, definitely. That, yeah. Oh, yeah. That I that idea and and there's i think you know when i first saw buzzard i thought oh this there's something uh this is some sort of commentary on capitalism but it's not a uh it's not an analytical kind of critique it's just an observation yeah i mean it's like marty the character in buzzard is it is like his his vision is like you know screw the man and and capitalism is wrong but he's just kind of as messed as messed up as the (laughs) system he's fighting like he doesn't really get it like most people don't totally understand how it all works and how capitalism is cyclical and and necessary really to like live and that it's right provides you with shelter and food and so he's just you know idealistic and and not really well informed about it and i think that's that's most people that's me i don't you know i don't know how how else to do this and and it makes me angry but most of my anger is misdirected and confused and i just don't know a better way what I liked in Buzzard was that Marty's idea of his like you know sort of make cash quick schemes, the ROI and all his efforts is very low. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's but that I was he's a he's a temp at a mortgage company and when yeah. I I was a temp at a mortgage company for a year and I did all the same things Marty did. I got so bored at my job. I was like in charge of ordering office supplies. I was like, boy, I could just go like return these. And I bet no one would even notice. So you just <laughs> you, it's like the, the boredom lures you into seeing how much wrong you can do until it becomes fun and you enjoy your job because you're doing things that no one even knows you're doing. And so like, yeah, when you could walk away from Office Max with like 26 bucks, it's like, wow, that was awesome. So (laughs) none of my, you know, like for a character like Marty, like 2000 bucks, that's, that's a major, major score. He's been working, you know, months to get 2000 bucks. So to get back (laughs) that time of his life. Uh, Now, one of the things that I think Teal and I have kind of debated, uh, and so I wanted to make sure we asked you this. Uh, especially the last two films, um, somewhat in, in Buzzard as well, but uh, we call them bottle movies, right? Almost like one location or minimal locations. And it seems, I think, on the surface, like, wow, you know, anybody who wants to make a, a low-budget film, that's a kind of a great idea because limit the locations. It could be a lot easier, limit the amount of actors, and you could make something pretty inexpensively. However, I think that to pull off a bottle movie successfully is another matter. It's it's very tricky to do what you've done in the last two movies. And I'm kind of wondering, are you like a fan of bottle movies or does sometimes the idea works that you know that for <laughs> such a small budget, you could probably pull this off? Because I think that, again, bottle movies I've seen go horribly wrong time and time again. And here I feel like you're becoming the bottle movie master. Um, I don't necessarily... Uh, nothing appeals to them to me. I mean, I think Buried is a pretty great that they were able to sustain yeah. that the entire time, but it wasn't like I want to do that. And it wasn't like I really love this movie. It all goes back to, again, the fact that I just really dislike production and any way I can make it easier for myself. <laughs> like Buzzard has a lot of locations. I know. And, it does. And it bounces yeah. around. And after Buzzard, I was like, my gosh, we I have to make this easier for myself or I'm going to lose my mind. <laughs> and so I was just like, this, wherever we, because like when you're making a, 
I mean, you guys went to film school, so you know, like when you're yeah. shooting a movie and you're doing like multiple locations things, if every day feels like you're moving and oh, you're yeah. like, and you're like organizing a wedding, like everything yes. has to be, every detail has to be right. And you're just hauling gear, just gear, just, oh, boxes and shit everywhere. And it's just like, every day is awful. So I was like, if we could just keep all the gear in one spot and set up the wedding and it's, that's how it's going to be for the entire three weeks, then that'll make my life easier so it comes from a place of this slash uh anxiety reducer for me that being right. said it, this next one is like all over the place with oh. locations so who knows man so you start with that constraint though when you're writing right you're like okay i gotta limit the location and so then you're working your ideas within that constraint there's nothing worse than having complete freedom like that is yeah. when movies go off the rails because if you can do anything then like what's the, like Michael Bay, if he needs to blow something up, they just throw us, you know, a few million dollars and it's done. So for me, I love, I need those restrictions. Otherwise I can't focus. So if it's like, all right, the camera has to stay inside the apartment. It can't go outside. It can't go in the hallway. We can't see what anybody else sees except for Abby's character. Right. Okay. I can do this. I can do this. I can do this. And then even with like the cinematographer is like, we, we come up with these rules on every movie. There's these restrictions. Where, so, with a relaxer, it's like the camera can never be – it always has to be at his eye line. It can tilt up. It can pan to the side. But oh. It has to always be at his eye line. We can never be behind him. We can never move a wall. We can never go into the hallway. I like that. How yeah. can we do this? And so, it just makes it easier because – Instead of having limitless options on set, you're like, okay, there's only really one true place this camera can be for this scene here and this scene here. And it just just frees you up in a weird way. I, th I feel like the camera movement and the framing and relaxer is just kind of impeccable and, and in, in a way that makes me feel like it was thought out and almost storyboarded ahead of time. But, but if you have those constraints and those rules, then that dictates it in a way that maybe you don't need a storyboard. Yeah, we don't we don't ever do storyboards. It's um, my DP and I are on the same page with everything. We yeah. we just uh, most of the camera movements in Relaxer are just the DP. He's also running the camera. It's just right. him him going with the groove of the scene, and I I that's why he's my DP. Is I just trust him that we're on this exact same page. So and that the opening of Relaxer is pretty long, and it was is yeah. actually a much longer when we shot it, it was seventeen minutes without any breaks and uh adam the dp is because the, the actors kept going i was like we're right. doing four pages i'll say cut and i think they were just trying to one-up each other and see <laughs> who, who would quit first and so they just kept going and i looked at adam and he was like yeah 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 and i was like just i just elbowed him I was like just do your thing man just they're just, they're they're going you just go man follow follow the action here and is awesome. Like, uh, it is great to have to, if you can shoot 16 pages in one shot, then like, <laughs> <laughs> congratulations. Like a 10th of your movie is done or like 20% yeah. of your movie is done in 16 minutes. So how long did the actual physical shoot for relaxer take? Not the pre-production and building the set. Um, and I did read a little about that. I mean, it's, I thought it was pretty outstanding because we, we had this debate before I like went in and researched it. And I was like, uh, teal it's like they built it out of a friend's garage because it looked like a real apartment building which is yeah. uh, that's what i thought was so cool it did not look like a set yeah we built that and and um our production designer's parents 
garage and that i mean that yeah like you said that took that took a long time just because we'd really never done anything like that we had no idea what we were doing and just making up as we went along but the actual shoot i think it was only two weeks of with the cameras rolling that's pretty quick yeah two weeks and i think the same with alchemist cookbook maybe anything after two weeks i'm ready to i'm ready to just <laughs> I'm, I'm done like i can't do any more than that so th- that's one of the reasons too that i shoot a, a lot of long takes is you could just crank out multiple pages in in one day, and right. there, we don't do coverage or any of the, that kind of traditional stuff. It's just so much easier to to do it like that. If you're going to do that, though, you have to have actors that can pull it off, and that's what I think is was so great about Relaxer and like you know again with Joshua Burge because if you have bad actors doing long takes, <laughs> it's <laughs> not going to work out around them because he's got to really trust you quite a lot to let him go where he goes sometimes and i and and i i know like with the uh spaghetti scene in buzzard that you kind of that was his thing and you just kept rolling i feel like you there's this tension between sort of maybe what you have in the script and what you're allowing the actors to do and there's it just seems like there's a huge level of trust going on i used to be like these are the words say them as written and and so it's it's all who you're working with. It's like right. some some actors you have to like tell them, okay, quit going off script because you don't have any clearly have no idea what this movie's about, and you're like, <laughs> tonally you're going into places I don't want to go. But with Josh, he just gets it. And the thing with Josh is he can memorize 25 pages of dialogue, no problem. Right. And and so I like having the balance of Josh being like almost robotically perfect with his delivery every time he can give you the same performance 10 times in a row and i like to throw a curveball and throw somebody like andre highland who plays dallas and relaxer who is going way off script all the time (laughs) and just and just watching (laughs) josh kind of like squirm through the scene and see how he can react because he's not the improv guy like andre is and right. so to see that weird contrast is like i don't know i mean what else are you making a movie for other than to like surprise if it was all predictable and exactly like you thought it was going to be and there's really not much of a point so i like those surprises and and, and yeah. yeah like trust we're all just we're in it together and we're doing this for the same reason well again it sounds like you're finding tension almost on set yeah and, and when we were doing buzzard uh you know i played the character of derek we know yes. it was awesome yeah. oh it was awesome <laughs> and so my i never told josh this but all i was ever trying to do was to make him laugh for him to break character <laughs> and so i would i kept pushing it harder and harder and he, ne- he only broke character once and it wasn't a scene we ended up using for the movie but that's how good he is is that he's so locked in on being whoever he is that it's fun for me to just try to rattle him always and surprise him in the middle of shots, throw something at him or, you know, throw out a, a weird line at him and, and just seeing how he reacts. And uh, yeah. yeah, I think you're right. There there does need to be a little bit of that, that tension on, on set to, to keep everybody on their toes. Some of the influences that you have from films that you like and how they've worked their way into your movies. Something that I thought was very interesting. Uh, Teal first pointed it out to me. And of course, then I went out and I said, well, I actually never saw this film, so I better go watch it. And that was in Relaxer that there was maybe a little homage or inspiration from Ben Wells' Exterminating Angel. Mm-hmm. And so I, it's on Criterion Channel, so I watched it. And what I thought was interesting about that is I, I wasn't a big fan of Exterminating Angel. I thought that... Uh, 
discreet charm of the bourgeoisie. He was much more successful in some mm-hmm. of those same ideas. But this idea of a bunch of people who could leave a room at any time, but they they won't. Um, and then, of course, on the outside, there's people that should be entering the building, but they they, they for some reason can't. Um, and it's maybe more like ennui or something or social status that prevents them from doing these things. And in Relaxer, I actually think it's like far more successful because for whatever reason, I totally bought the idea that because of this challenge, this guy isn't going to leave the couch <laughs> for anything. Like, I thought it was so well set up that this guy is almost like been mentally punished for failing so often at these challenges that he is not going to give up on this one. And he just, I loved how he was morphed into that couch. At one point, he was like literally morphed into the couch. Well, first off, the the cinema gods might strike you down to say that (laughs) anything I've done is better than Boone Wells. So just be very careful with that. Yeah, but uh, Van Wells on record is saying that he doesn't like Exterminating Angel. I love Exterminating Angel. I love exactly the the reasons that you just said, like, for whatever reason, they can't get out of the dining room or they're not wanting to. And for whatever reason, the people outside can't. And it's just like, whoa, man, this is like this is the construct, (laughs) the social construct in a (laughs) most absurd way. I love that movie. And I was like, I just want to steal it. I want to modern i want to update it i'm going to take everything from it so it's just sometimes you see a movie and for whatever reason you just like just totally clicks with you and it's like this this is my kind of cinema right here and and uh and it, i do actually it's not even my favorite boot well though like my favorite is phantom of liberty but there's something that again it seems so attainable a movie like that it's like oh a dining room and like something outside what if i just do instead of the dining room a living room right like, that's like Great. I can I can make it even more restricted than Boone Well and and uh, kind of play with some of the same ideas, but obviously make it my own kind of Mountain Dew fantasy version of it. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, and then of course uh, one of the things I remember very very distinctly in Buzzard because it was you know kind of a teenage favorite film of mine was your your demons connection and like I think you think you have the mask in there and yeah uh, and I'm like oh man that movie demons I love that film and we're talking about references in your films and I think there's quite a few of them but when I was watching Alchemist Cookbook I felt really smug because I. I got the long goodbye <laughs> reference. Yeah. The weird thing is that I'm not a big long goodbye fan. And what? usually I know, I don't know, for whatever reason, it's just like, yeah, I'm a cave and Mrs. Miller kind of guy. Oh, but, well, like, you know, uh, yeah, yeah. I know. And I know you don't have to <laughs> okay. pick and choose, but, but I don't know. But it's, so it's usually like whatever I watched last usually makes it in my scripts. So it's not like my oh, favorite things. Right. It's like, uh, that's just fresh in my head. That's going in there. I love that little tidbit. That's going in there. What about now when you when you have your your film class? You you have to have them see, I guess, x amount of movies a semester. Uh, what what are the kind of films did you do you show them or have them watch? Well, it's not really like I teach a script writing class. I teach uh, production classes where we don't have time. Right. But I do. I teach like a I, I like a kind of a gen ed. Uh, film history class so you know we're watching psycho right now but i do have so i do have a luxury because i'm teaching a class on post-production and there's a lot of downtime and i guess in the past other professors are like all right just take a month off and you know work on your project i'm like no way we're gonna we're gonna watch some stuff so right (laughs) we watched i've shown them and i want to try to show them things that i think they should see but they haven't and stuff that they would never find on their own so we watched american movie 
We watched, uh, yesterday we watched the Beaver Trilogy. I don't know if you guys ever heard of it. Talked about it on the show, uh, I don't know, now it feels like 10 months ago, but it was sometime in the spring, because <laughs> yeah. I loved that. I thought that was great. Yeah, so we're going to be talking with Trent Harris, the director, tomorrow oh my in class. God, that's so awesome. And then next week, I think I'm going to show them House, the Japanese Oh yeah, 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 Hauzu. Yeah, so I like to, sh I, I, yeah, I like to just show them things that they're not going to find on Netflix. I think. Right. Do you have like a favorite couple of movies to teach that, uh, like, I I taught a class. I taught for like ten years at college level, and I uh, I taught a class on Stanley Kubrick, and there were certain films that I just loved seeing the audience. The students' reaction their first so time. So, what's your go-to Kubrick? Because I have one too in my Gen Ed class that we're going to be oh. watching in a couple of weeks. Okay, so it's interesting because I I never taught the class in chronological order through his filmography. I always mixed it up. And the first time I taught the class, I showed Eyes Wide Shut first. Wild choice for the oh, first wow, one. Oh wow, for the first one. Okay. <laughs> for the first one, I was uh, yeah, I made a wild choice, and everyone hated it. I I could see that. The next time I taught the class, I did Eyes Wide Shut, I think second to last, and everyone loved it. <laughs> I think it's hard to appreciate that without really knowing who Stanley Kubrick was and kind of familiar with his work. Because I don't think there's, I don't love that movie, I, but I haven't seen it in a long time, though. Yeah, it's hard to appreciate without, but also like <sighs> Clockwork Orange, I feel like once people understand Kubrick a little bit better, they see the humor in it more. That's one that's like, I, w I wish I could show Clockwork Orange. That's Oh, do you have restrictions at school? No, but I just. Uh, oh, it's a different just, day and age for sure. Yeah, <laughs> there's, there's just, yeah. and it's not even like necessarily as, you know, offensive or whatever, however you want to call it as it used to be, but it's still a little bit uncomfortable. A few, a few scenes, especially toward the beginning that it's like, yes. oh. Yeah. The first 45 minutes can be, I, I, I had, I had to do a lot of warnings before showing it. Yeah. Which I don't want to do. So I, I start off, I, I show them 2001 and okay, yeah. I'm like, because I think the, the 2001 is the, the greatest film of all time. Okay, so <laughs> now, now you're speaking our language. But I, I tell them ahead you. of time, I'm like, you guys are probably going to be bored, but let me tell you why you shouldn't be bored. And then I go into a thing. <laughs> okay, so I find uh, I actually found some things in common with your films in 2001. <laughs> uh, you're getting, again, the cinema gods are looking down right now, ready to strike. But in 2001, there are a lot of scenes of people eating and drinking and going to the bathroom and these really kind of mundane alone moments sort of these observations about the human existence of uh, yeah just food and like sleep and yeah it's weird because i saw it's 2001 i saw it all the time when i was a kid and it was like to me it was two things in one it was like the first time i'd ever seen what i could think of like a movie that you'd hang on a wall like a painting like yeah oh, okay, this is this is like something different this is art but it was also like had those moments of just like incredibly dull, mundane space <laughs> conversations, which now I'm like, this is what I tell the students. I was like, this is what you don't see in movies. Just kind of like space is taken for granted. And this isn't right. some fascinating concept to people because this is just their life and their job. That's what you have to appreciate about this is that yeah. this is their daily routine and it is not spectacle and awe but he'll give us both of those so as a viewer we're allowed to kind of just sink into what it must feel like to work nine to five on a spaceship and then balanced out with you know these operatic visions of 
pre-CGI that made Star Wars possible and how important this is and how a lot of it still stands up today, whether you're able to kind of like engage with it on an entertainment level or not. This is something like a Michelangelo painting we need to to appreciate and this is why. Yeah, I had one student who after 2001 said I've never it, I, I never considered before that movies could be art. Yeah, cool. You wrote a review uh, about <laughs> dragged across concrete. Yeah. And it's such a well-written review and it, it just it really encapsulates why that's a great movie in a way that I just <laughs> in anything else I've read about it, it didn't quite do uh, justice to what you said about it. Good, thanks. We talked about the film uh, again. It was back in the early part of the, yeah. the COVID nineteen uh, because Teal put it on like his best of the the year for that year, and then I was like, all right, I've got to. It was I, on my top ten for that year. It's yeah. great. I hadn't seen it. I had seen his other movies, and then I finally saw it. And while I didn't put it in my best of the the year, I did think it was a really good film, and and I liked how you dismissed and kind of put away aside. You say, you know, people that are looking for some kind of uh, political message uh, to the characters that's the wrong approach and and I yeah. agree with you because I don't I, I don't like you said I don't know what the guy's uh, particular political persuasions are but I just look at it's like he's making a film and these are the characters and this is what's happening in the film and uh, it stands on its own to that regard yeah I mean to me that's like if I reverse that like somebody watching something that I directed and wrote and being like oh like buzzard like he doesn't he obviously doesn't understand how capitalism works and that uh, you know corporations are run by it's like that's not me dude that's um (laughs) what fun is it to write about me and my views of the world all day like so trying to cause concrete is like i just believed those guys like I, i know those guys like why are we afraid to make a movie about those guys those are the guys are usually like the bad guys in a movie and they're not bad. They're just real people who are have good ways they see the world. That's it's, it's it's all about like do 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 characters agree with or do we agree with the way that characters right. see the world and and they should and that, that's such bullshit. Like how boring to see a movie through the eyes of somebody that sees it the same way that we do, like a character. Like give me a break. And that we agree with and that is yeah. likable. Yeah. Well, I also think you made an excellent point about, uh, I guess it's a debatable moment that we, we had when we talked about it on our show was the Jennifer Carpenter character and how, A, it seems so atypical that this character shows up at all and gets a little bit of an arc. And then, of course, you know, what, what her journey is. But yeah. what it does, and I, I think that you, you talked about this in your review, but it kind of suddenly what, what takes place in that bank yeah. The way a typical movie like that would happen is all the characters in there, because we weren't introduced to them or anything, they're all dispensable, throwaway, and for an audience, you don't have really any weight to what happens right. to those characters. But suddenly, because of what happens and the, the what we've been built up for like a good 15 minutes with Jennifer Carpenter, that changes everything that happens in that bank. Yeah. It's such a scene that, that gets deleted in any other movie. Yeah. And he, I'm sure he had to fight for that with whatever investors or maybe he didn't. Maybe they just like, this is the movie you're making. Go for it. Because it's just so it's real. And, and like you said, it, it makes, it gives like a humanity to a, what a typical death would be on camera. I, th- I just thought it was so perfect and, and so brave of a, of a move to pull. 
like that. And I would love for more movies to do that. And I think that's, it's, it's essentially what Tarantino is mm-hmm. doing in a, di- in a different way is putting like humanity behind what are usually just kind of like disposable generic looking suit wearing gangster types. Like, no, these are just real guys. And, and more than they're just real guys with a sense of humor, they're just guys doing a job. Like they're just, they're just going to work. Right. It just happens to be what they do is a little unsavory. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. (laughs) To us, to our worldview, but to them, this is just like, you know, like Grand Theft Auto does a good job with it too. They're just like, you know, they're just normal guys trying to get a, you know, get a catch a break. And this is what they, this is all they know how to do really. So what is it like now? You know, you're teaching this fall, correct? You just mentioned that you're, you know, so are you in person or is it online? (laughs) Like what's going on there? I am one of the very few that's stupid enough to do it in person. Okay. My wife's doing in person. Yeah. His wife's a professor and she's, she's got to do it. Yeah. So, you know, we do the masks and everybody's distant and stuff, but I just, Oh, I just for the I felt so bad for the students. Yeah, this is what happened to their semester and maybe their year, or maybe who knows how long. And I just was so desperate to give them just one one class that they can go to and see other students. Yeah. And yeah. I just need to give them that so badly. And I, I I don't feel at risk ever. I'm never close to them. Yeah, uh, I'm always you know masked up watching right. it. So I think it doesn't feel much different at all. I, I'm grateful that we had the option to do that, and I, I get why. I obviously we get why people would never want to do that, but I just, it just, it feels too. We ended the semester last year on re- remote, right. and it's just so distant, and it, so much of what I teach is about feelings, and it, it just, it's, mm-hmm. all, it's all lost on a computer. It's all lost, and and it doesn't. It's a disservice to the students to teach like a production class over the internet and have them do everything with their phone and things. So right. it's it's a it's a it's a really tricky gray area that I'm in right now, but I'm just trying to do it safely. I think we're doing a good job because no students have gotten sick in any of my classes. So. Good. Fingers crossed. You know, it's been over 30 years since I went to film school, but I remember that feeling of, I was a sophomore because I transferred in and Mm -hmm. I went from, you know, hoping that someday I could get into film school to suddenly within the first week, I'm in a film production class and I'm touching a 16 millimeter camera. And that moment to me to actually physically be there and touch this equipment that I've been dreaming about since I was like 10 years old, it, it was, it meant something to me. To yeah. actually be able to to like touch my dream for a second. You sound like me, the old man in front of class trying to <laughs> tell them why film is better than video. <laughs> I know that like, you know, sure, it would be great. Like you'd probably love to be shooting a film on film, but boy, that would just add even more stress to your life if you could. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They're, so they, they, they do shoot on 16, though. They're still doing that. That's cool. At your school? Yeah. Oh, they do? Yeah. Oh, that's super cool. Yeah. Wow. Just mailed out three cans this morning. Well, I feel like if, they are, if they're going to learn, right, until that day has come where you can just can't anymore, that's really where they have to understand. Because that kind of teach them economy, right? That you just can't just go, I'm going to shoot whatever I want and see what happens. Like you actually, I remember when we had those rolls, I got, I had one, what, a hundred foot roll teal? Yep. Is that what yep. we had? And yep. like, so we had to really think, well, how am I going to make this like, you know, two minute masterpiece with a hundred feet of film? With a hundred feet of film. That's one of the reasons we do i mean i can preach all day about the magic of the grain and all that but i'm like now you guys are real filmmakers because suddenly you're not video makers who can just shoot every single angle possible 50 takes you have to think about every single setup you're doing and make sure the actors are prepped it's i think you you if you're not teaching on 
using film, the students aren't truly That's... filmmakers. Well, and, and you were saying earlier that you don't do a lot of coverage, that you pretty much have your shot that you're going for. Yeah. And, and so that's almost, you're almost working in camera then, in a sense. Yeah. I mean, because I, for the longest time I was, you know, just film, film, film guy, like yeah. nothing else. And I still have that mind state. And that is the reason I don't shoot on film because like wrapping a day and then just sending it off to lab and hoping that it's exposed <laughs> properly. Yeah. Like, oh, that, that's that i can't handle that kind of stress anymore, <laughs> like on top of everything else i love it and all my shorts are all on super eight and things like that but at this level with so many people and and kind of having such a small amount of time to work or wanting to work i i can't really picture going back to film quite yet so one film that I heard was an influence on you, but I'm just kind of curious about it only because I know it's a big film for Teal and I saw it in the past year and I really liked it too was uh, you like Lindsay Anderson's Oh Lucky Man. Oh my gosh. Oh, yeah. oh it's the best. Why doesn't everybody love Oh Lucky? Why hasn't everybody seen Oh Lucky Man? I love it. I, I saw it when I was probably 10 years old and I loved it and I've seen it since then several times and yeah it's an amazing movie i uh, i saw it in college for the first time it's just it's so great and here's a quick story i read a an interview with kubrick in uh, like a, a playboy compilation of interviews and he's talking about how he, how in in the uk there's the 21st chapter i think of a clockwork orange the book yes and in, yes, the, in the yeah. in the u.s it didn't it didn't make it over here. And right. he read he read the version without the 21st chapter and based the screenplay on that. And and I was like, Malcolm McDowell, he came up with the idea for Oh Lucky Man. That was like, he didn't write the screenplay, but it's his story. And I was like, I think he is writing a continuation of the Alex character because in the mm. 21st chapter, Alex gets a job and he tries to assimilate to society that we don't see in the movie. So I think this is his kind of take on that. So I go to this... I go to the fan expo convention in Toronto a few years ago and Malcolm McDowell is like the, the one of the guests and he's like, all right, we're going to do a Q and a here in a second. And, I, and I'm the first guy I run up to the microphone and he, and he goes, he goes, I only want intelligent questions. Don't, you know, he's kind of doing, <laughs> he's, he's, he's being his, his character up there. And I'm like, all right, I got one for you. And I lay that out. I was like, you know, Stanley Kubrick, 21st chapter, yada, yada. And how do you think? And he's just like, that is the most ridiculous bullshit I've ever heard. And the whole place is laughing at me. And I'm like, no, listen, hear me out. And he's like, I only wanted intelligent questions. What? And I was like, this is, I, this is, I think, a pretty solid theory. And I'm like arguing with him. And everyone's just like booing at me. And it's like. I, I couldn't believe it. I was like, my at first of all, my heart was just broken. But like one of my screen idols is just telling me that I'm full of shit. And so then I go like sit down like red. Like my girlfriend's like, I've never seen you humiliated like that in my entire life. And I was like, I just want to get out of here. And so we go to the hotel. It's like, I don't want to go back there. That guy broke my heart. I was like, but I have to go back tomorrow. I have to confront him somehow. <laughs> so he's at his booth signing autographs. And I'm like, that's not the place. He's There's a line. He's just trying to rush it. And my girlfriend's like, I got to go to the bathroom. I was like, all right, I'll go with you. And so for whatever reason, she must have found like the secret back bathroom because she goes back there. And I was like, I'll wait for you. And then I turn around and it's Nev Campbell talking to Malcolm McDowell. And I'm like, 
here's my shot. Oh. So I so I go up to, I go up to him and I just put my hand on Malcolm McDowell's shoulder and I was like, "You lost a fan, dude." And he's like, oh. "What are you what are you talking about?" I was like, "I was a dude that asked that very excellently phrased question about a lucky man yesterday and you shot me down for no reason." And he's like, Listen, I'm doing a performance up there. Do you want me to give you an honest answer in front of a thousand people? I was like, yes, because I came all the way here basically to ask you that question. He's like, (laughs) all right, kid. It's a pretty good theory and it actually makes sense. And most of that is correct that you are saying. But I couldn't say it in front of there, in front of everybody, because I was just trying to move this show along. And I was like, <laughs> all right, I'm glad I came back here. And he, and he took, took a picture with me and it was like a, a beautiful moment. We, I got to hug him and it was like, all right. I was so glad that I got to leave Toronto. Still, still a Malcolm McDowell fan. And my theory just validated a tiny, tiny bit. That's so, amazing. Oh, lucky man. It's one of the best top fiver for me, for sure. All right. Well, hey, listen, this has been, this has probably been the highlight, one of the highlights that we've ever had doing the show, just because it's fun to get a chance to talk to somebody that, uh, you know, we we watched your work on screen and now we're talking to you and you're just totally awesome. So we're speaking the same language. Yeah, I think so. We're all S. Craig Zaylor fans. So, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So the filmmaker is Joel Petrikas. And he has films, Ape, I don't know, you're going to have to go to the nether regions of the internet if you want to scrape that out one for free. Uh, but you can find Buzzard, I think, is still on Amazon Prime. Yeah, I believe so. Alchemist Cookbook, I know is on Hulu. Uh, Relaxer, I know is on Canopy. It may be on some other sources as well. Uh, you know what, if you want, you're still home, most of you people. And look, we got streaming and there are a lot of films that are not your big mainstream hits that you should check out. And that's what I've been trying to do. I've been trying to like really find films that I've never seen and lately I've been watching tons of stuff that I've never seen um, and so that's just kind of cool to just fill up my uh, film vocabulary with new movies um, but again Joel thank you so much for giving us your evening to talk about movies Jim and Teal it was a pleasure thank you so much all right and uh, everyone out there I hope you've enjoyed that again check out Joel's films uh, this is stuff we've seen you can find this on stuff we've seen.com and you can always send a message at feedback at stuff we've seen.com and we're on Instagram and uh, Twitter and all that fun stuff all right people go watch some stuff out of your living room or play video games trying to get to Pac-Man level 256 which you'll understand if you watch relaxer <laughs> take it easy see you guys Or as Malcolm McDowell would say, catch you later. Catch you later.